3: I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Jack Ashby, author of Platypus Matters The Extraordinary Story of Australian Mammals, published this year by William Collins. Dr. Ashby, welcome to the show.
1: Hi there, Stentor. Um, I'm not actually a doctor. If that's oh, sorry. <laughs> I say. All right,
2: I've yeah.
3: given you a promotion there. Exactly. <laughs> Okay, so to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book?
1: Sure. So um, I'm a zoologist by training um, with, a, with a particular area of interest in Australian mammals, um, particularly the smaller ones. So um, my my day job is, is as assistant director of the University Museum of Zoology in Cambridge, UK, um, and that involves... Um, managing our collections team who look after uh, our two million specimens from across the world and looking after our visitor services team who are responsible for um, how how our public experience the museum through our exhibitions, our galleries and all things like that. Um, That's my day job. But uh, my kind of a big, as I said, my big passionate part of zoology is is Australian mammals. And um, I spend a couple of months of a year or at least pre-COVID, I'd spend a couple of months a year in Australia on field work um, I'm volunteering myself for um, ecological research with environmental NGOs and universities there, so trapping small mammals and letting them go again, answering certain questions. And so I came to write this book kind of combining those, um, those two parts of my life, so working with the dead animals in zoology museums and working with live animals out in the field in Australia
3: okay so this book it's it's about these australian mammals and it's also a book kind of about language and about the way that we talk about australian mammals so i want to start with a a simple one which is so the the plural of platypus is platypuses and you advocate calling their young platypups is that right
1: that's right yeah i mean some people try to be all fancy about it and call them platypi but um that's definitely not correct because platypuses has Greek roots, so that just means flat foot in, in Greek, which, which to be honest is kind of the least interesting thing about platypuses that they have flat feet. But that's what it means. Um, but as it's a Greek um, in origin, if we wanted to go all classical about it, it would be platypodes, because that's how the Greeks pluralize um, us rather than platypi, which is how uh, Romans would in Latin. So yeah, platypodes would be the classical way, but let's just stick with English and say platypuses. And um, yeah, That's Pups, that's my, that's my um, suggestion to the world. There's no real, uh, there's no conventional way of coming up with baby names. Um, platypuses don't have an existing baby name. Um, people sometimes use Puggle, um, P-U-G-G-L-E, which is the name of the babies that... Um, are given to their closest relatives, the echidnas. So that's kind of the official name of a baby echidna. So some people give it to platypuses too because it's obviously a great word, um, but there's no convention for that. So I think platypuses deserve one of their own. And then um, I suggest platypups. All right.
3: So it's common to hear platypuses and all other Australian animals described as being like weird. Um, so what's what's wrong with that? What's wrong with calling them weird?
1: Like I mean, absolutely. Like the most common thing you see, as you say, is is weird. I think like weird and wonderful is kind of absolutely ubiquitous in um, natural history documentaries, in museums, newspaper articles, in magazines, everything. Weird and wonderful. But um, I, I'm sure people use that as a kind of as a kind of celebratory, enthusiastic way. People are fond of Australian mammals. But what I've um, But looking at what's one of the stories I tell in Platypus Matters is just the history of how uh, these species have been described since the European invasion of Australia in in the 1770s. Um, And consistently, Europeans have described Australian mammals in a kind of subtly pejorative way. So they're continuously calling them like inferior, lesser mammals, kind of like proto-mammals or uh, lesser beasts, lower mammals, and all these descriptions throughout history are kind of inferring that they're just not as good as um the mammals from the rest of the world, like placental mammals like us. Um and I think that has a hangover today in how we in in where this idea that they're kind of weird, strange, curious creatures has come from. Um, and you might say, yeah, well platypuses are weird, get over it. Um, Indeed, people do say that, but I do think that it's it's a risky thing to do because Australia um, has the worst extinction rate of anywhere on Earth. So since, since uh, the British invaded in, in 1788, more species have gone extinct in Australia than in any other country. In fact, over a third of all mammal extinctions in those 250 years um, have been in Australia, which is, which is a pretty big deal, and there's a lot of reasons for that, but... Um, I think it doesn't help if we if we kind of write them off or imply um through writing them off that they're it's because or partly because they're kind of lesser inferior which doesn't make any any evolutionary sense um, does that make sense but, yeah. yeah
3: yeah and you you make the point a number of times that you know any animal that's alive today is equally evolved as any other animal even though people will sometimes talk about some of these Australian animals as if they're somehow you know living fossils or they're less evolved than uh, placental mammals from other parts of the world.
1: Exactly that so yeah I mean so there's for those who don't know there are, th- there are three groups of, of mammal alive today um, and they are defined by how they reproduce so the by far the biggest group um, is uh, placental mammals that's mammals like us so placental mammals give birth to Um, quite large young after a long pregnancy and then they finish off the baby's development by suckling milk on a teat. So that's placental mammals. Um, The second biggest group uh, is marsupials and they do the opposite thing. So they give birth to really, really small young after a really short pregnancy and then do most of the baby's growth uh, or suckling milk on a teat, often in a pouch. And that's obviously what they're famous for. Um, Though actually not all marsupials have pouches. Um, and then the third group is, is really small, there's just five species, that's the, the platypus and the echidnas, and um, they are the egg-laying mammals. And so, in the history of mammals, um, the very first species would have, ha- would have laid eggs a couple of hundred million years ago. Um, platypuses and echidnas, the egg-laying mammals, or monotremes, um, they've never stopped laying eggs. But they are, as you say, they are equally evolved. They've been, they've, to have got to this point, um, they are as advanced as any other species. Um, but so, but you, I can underst- understand when people describe them as kind of a, an ancient group, although that's not the words I would use, because that group split off from other mammals much earlier in, in history than kind of the origins of, of our group. But when people describe marsupials as more primitive... Um, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever because marsupials, by definition, are exactly the same age as, as marsupials. That's how, you know, that's how evolution works. It splits in two. And then you've got two branches uh, that are exactly the same age. So marsupials and placental mammals split about 160 million years ago. So we are exactly the same age as kangaroos and koalas. And yeah, the group, sorry, we are exactly the same age as the group that contains um, koalas and kangaroos
3: yeah and you know to stay with the marsupial uh example you kind of described this reproductive system that marsupials have with the you know giving birth early on and then keeping the young in the pouch as being actually a a really sophisticated kind of adaptation for reproduction can you talk a little bit more about you know how marsupial reproduction works and what's kind of you know useful about that for
1: them I definitely can because it is one of the most astonishing things in the natural world uh, for me, the, the very start of marsupial life. And that is, so marsupials, as I said, give birth after a really short pregnancy. So in in the case of some of the smaller species, it's like 10, 11 days. So babies are born after less than two weeks. In the biggest species, there's a red kangaroo, it's about 90 kilos. Well, it's a, a big male, is about 90 kilos, females are much smaller. They give birth after about five weeks. Even so, after that really short pregnancy, the, the baby that's produced is kind of this little tiny pink jelly bean that's just a few millimetres long um, and a kangaroo, maybe a centimetre long, um, half an inch. And despite this kind of really short period for growth, they are born with with really, really well-developed arms and the kind of musculature, Uh, skeletal system and kind of nervous system capable of moving a significant distance. So they're born um, uh, out of the, you know, when they're born and they have to climb themselves unaided from the vaginas into the pouch. Um, I said vaginas because actually marsupials can have three vaginas, um, which I can go into if you're
2: you're keen. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
1: definitely. (laughs) So... The, uh, if you think about kind of a human reproductive system, you've got the a pair, you know you've got a pair of ovaries, pair of fallopian tubes, and they go down into the womb. Um, in marsupials, the the kind of half and half pairing carries right on down. So they've got a pair of ovaries like us, pair of fallopian tubes, them, but the wombs uh, are continue to be paired. So there's one womb on each side, and then when uh, those two wombs each have a vagina. Um, leading down to the cloaca and so there's two vaginas there uh, which are there all the time and then when they give birth in some species they grow a third vagina a central one in which to give birth through and sometimes that can that seals up um, after each birth uh, and sometimes it just stays there after the first birth so kangaroos can well i think kangaroos have three vaginas um anyway so they're born from the vagina. Then they have to the vagina. They have to climb to the pouch, which, as I say, is amazing because it's it's just a couple of weeks' growth. Um, they can climb a really significant distance, like many many times their body length. Um, and then they get in the pouch, and not only do they well ha- have well developed arms, but they have well developed lips, uh, and they attach themselves to a teat there. And that's a really nifty system because they'll then start growing. If you're a you know if you're a 50 kilo kangaroo female kangaroo has given birth to something that's maybe like half a gram that's obviously like a really minimal investment if that's not too much of a kind of callous way of looking at it um the mothers haven't haven't invested a lot in their babies by that point by the time they've finished suckling and they're fully grown obviously they will have invested a huge amount of of energy into producing milk and looking after them carrying them around um, at an extraordinary age you can see like you see large kangaroos like three or four feet tall climbing into the pouch of their mothers and like they don't, their arms and legs don't fit in their tails don't fit in they, also, they all um, stick out which is kind of funny to watch but um, why that's a handy adaptation is that in a, in a kind of environmentally un, unpredictable place like Australia so there's a place where there's lots of you know lots of droughts, lots of floods floods um, and as well as having predators around. If if the goings gets tough and the mother's life is at risk, basically, it's much much easier if, as I say, emotionally callous to our human sensibilities. It's much much easier to kind of put an end to proceedings and reach into the pouch and remove the youngish if, if she has to if her life is at risk. And the same if she's being chased by predators. Um, that's up, you know. It's, it's easy to kind of abandon the um, the baby. To save her own life but there will come a point in the pregnancy obviously not in the pregnancy she's not pregnant anymore it's in the pouch in the in the baby's life when obviously she or has invested a huge amount of of, of resources so making that kind of decision if that's the right word will, will be a much less likely thing to happen so that i mean it's, it's a sensible system i could keep talking like i could keep talking about what some yes. other species do um and a species i work with a lot of tasmanian devils and quolls which are their kind of spotty mongoose-like relatives um they they have a really nifty system that builds on what kangaroos do uh in that it kind of ends the same way but they get there in a different way so kangaroos only give birth to one baby at a time um in fact before i move on to devils the other cool thing about kangaroos is they only give birth to one baby at a time but they can actually be most of them can be um, kind of caring for three at different ages at once so they have this conveyor belt uh, reproduction system where they've got a newborn baby in the pouch, tiny little one that's suckling on one teat that is um, producing you know, newborn age appropriate milk. Um, then they'll have another baby that's outside the pouch that keeps uh, sticking its head in periodically um, to feed on a different teat that produces different milk so they can have two, two of their teats can produce different milk at the same time. And then inside one of her wombs, she'll have a third baby that, uh, was fertilized soon like, so they mate soon after they've given birth so then there's a third baby but they've actually paused the development of that baby so they they reproduce they mate, uh, fertilize an egg and then that egg fertilized egg is paused in suspended animation um, waiting for a teat to free up so one one of the other when one of the um when the young at the one outside the, t- the pouch um, is weaned or perhaps if if the other baby dies uh, and a teat becomes free, they'll hit the play button on that embryo developing in the womb and, and um, kind of kickstart its growth and then give birth and continue on that that endless conveyor belt. Um, especially when times are good. And in fact, there's one species, uh, the swamp wallaby from southeastern Australia, that um, goes one step further and has another baby in her other womb at a different age. Um, so those species, that species is never throughout their entire reproductive life. They are never not um, simultaneously lactating and pregnant, which is pretty extraordinary. It might not sound like a very attractive proposition, but um, it means that they can reproduce kind of endlessly if times are good. But back to those Tasmanian devils. So they they um, do, they do end up in a similar place, but they start, start off their story in a different way. And that's, they give birth to about 20 or 25 babies. Um, Again, weigh just kind of a, a fraction of a gram—absolutely tiny little pink worm-like things—and that system kind of um, is kind of similar to a lot of species, a lot of different non-mammal animals that produce loads and loads of babies, kind of playing the odds game in the hope that some of them um, will survive. So, if you think like you know frog spawn you know, or toad spawn in a garden pond, they're producing tons and tons of babies, um, but most of them will die. Uh, but just for the fact that they've produced loads um, and they don't care for them, but, you know, by chance, a small number will survive. So Tasmanian devils and quolls um, do something similar at the start of their system where they produce these 20 or 30 young. But they've only got four teeth. So they can only actually, well, devils only have four teeth. Quolls have um, six or eight Um so they can only produce can only actually raise four or six or eight or the same number of teeth they have young because the babies attach to them um, continuously. So uh, they're playing this odds game where they're betting that some of the babies won't survive the journey to the pouch. Um, and indeed when we catch um, these these devils after they've been given birth, we often find that there are some empty teeth because they haven't e- even, even though they've given birth to 20. Um, four of them haven't made it. And then once they're in the pouch and they've attached to the young, they attach to the cheats, they've um they kind of play this this kind of more um familiar mammal strategy of investing heavily in a small number of young. So they kind of go from the frog odds-based system to the mammal and bird kind of high investment system. So they're playing both games, which I think is kind of evolutionary genius.
3: Yeah, yeah. So one of the big arguments that you make in the book is that some of these ways that we talk about Australian mammals in kind of disparaging terms as being, you know, primitive and and weird is tied into colonialism. So can you make that connection for us? How is this, uh, you know, an expression of or or contributing to colonialism when we describe Australian mammals as weird or primitive?
1: Sure. The first thing I'll say is that (laughs) I'm I'm convinced it's, I, it's throughout time it's been accidental or subconscious if you like but what's happening or what happened in the 19th and late 18th centuries and and throughout you know, more recent times is that european scientists and and australian settler colonial colon, uh, colonists um, are encountering species that are completely unlike anything they've encountered before in the main um, I should say that about half of Australian mammals are rodents and bats, so they are much more familiar um, to Europeans. Um, but what happened is that they found this bunch of animals, egg-laying mammals and, and marsupials, that were so so unfamiliar. And rather than go about describing them in kind of relatively um, objective terms, that... Uh, kind of just described how you know, they are amazing animals how, how amazing they are. They described them in relation to uh, known placental kind of northern hemisphere uh, animals. Um, and in doing so, they took those kind of familiar animals as a zoological standard and by saying that the Australian mammals were different to them, imply and inferior to them, they implied uh, that they didn't meet this standard and therefore were kind of lesser. and throughout, uh and throughout history its it's it's constant where they're they're just being inaccurately described as kind of not quite living up to the standards of, Austra- of um non-australian mammals which which doesn't make any sense and we continue i think we've we've inherited this um today in in, in how we talk about them as I said kind of in some weird and wonderful ways but um what i don't think was happening was that they were doing this on purpose but the, the way it ties into colonialism is that um, at the time of the invasion, the, it was justified, the invasion was justified, uh, and the kind of dispossession of Aboriginal Australians of their land and their sovereignty um, was, was justified using this legal notion of terra nullius, which means no one's land. Uh, and the idea was that um, the argument they made, a thoroughly racist argument, was that Australian, uh, Indigenous Australian people were... Uh, too uncivilized um, to own their land, so they're described as kind of hunter gatherers, um, which didn't manage land. Now we know that in in large parts of Australia, that people um, were not uh, simply hunter gatherers. But also, I should point out that being hunter gatherers isn't a kind of primitive lifestyle. It's you know there's nothing there's nothing inferior about being a being a hunter gatherer. But what they did at the same time is they they're writing off. Um, First Nations Australian people as being primitive. And this is very much tied or entangled with how they're also describing uh, the animals that they encountered as being primitive and uncivilised. And I think it, it kind of this collective notion of primitivity helped them justify the invasion, helped them justify dispossession and and kind of follow through on the, on the terra nullius argument. Um, and I'm not, as I say, I'm not saying... That, they, that Someone sat around deliberately saying, you know what, if we write off these animals, uh, then it will make the, um, the invasion and, and settlement sound more plausible. But, but it did make life a lot easier for them.
2: Slash nbn fifty to get fifty percent off.
3: Yeah, and so you talk a lot about some of these uh, early European and and white settler scientists who are trying to make sense of these unfamiliar animals and some of the these debates they had about you know the some basic biological features of uh, these animals and some of these people are. are interesting characters um so i wanted to ask you about uh, at least one of them um which was william hay caldwell who kind of finally settled the the debate among europeans at least about whether platypuses lay eggs uh so you can can you talk a little bit about who he was what he did and how he kind of illustrates the way that science was being done by europeans in australia
1: absolutely yeah it's, it's- someone I've been talking about a lot lately because we've just made some really cool discoveries about him which I can tell you about but, but Cordwell, as you say he was the one that provided the definitive proof that Europeans were willing to accept that in fact some mammals lay eggs so we now know platypuses and echidnas lay eggs and it's down to Cordwell that we know that um, what, <laughs> that happened in 1884 platypuses and echidnas were first described by Europeans in the 1790s but in the 1890s in between, a debate was raging about whether it could be possible that something like us, like a mammal, um, could lay eggs, and that and that is surprising that it took eighty or ninety years to demonstrate this because you'd think it was fairly straightforward um, and unsurprising. So, I mean, people with Europeans were sent to Australia, including Caldwell, but several before him, with the specific. Kind of instruction to solve the the egg laying mammal mystery, and and settler naturalists uh, who moved over there were working on it for many of those decades, and many of them, as you would be, as you wouldn't be surprised to hear, asked uh, Aboriginal Australians, do platypuses and echidnas lay eggs? And of course, they said yes, they do, um, and unfortunately, that information was either dismissed or ignored by scientists back in Europe. And so was any piece of evidence that Australian-based European uh, naturalists, any evidence that they found, or any kind of reports that they said, platypus the kidneys' latex, um, that was all dismissed and ignored or explained away in relatively um, kind of nonsensical arguments for why they ignored it. So enter William Caldwell. He was, I'm I'm talking to you from the University of Cambridge, he was uh, based here as a recent graduate, um, uh, a university demonstrator. Um, he was working under the, the mentorship of a of an embryologist called um, Francis um, Maitland Balfour. And Balfour had, this was in the 1880s, uh, Balfour had been um, kind of uh, talked up as being the, the next Darwin. He was uh, kind of founded the, the science of comparative embryology, which is looking at different animals' embryos and kind of explaining why they're different or why they're the same base they're the same based on their evolutionary histories and their life's lifestyles. Um, so Balfour was a shining light, kind of primed to take over uh, kind of the, the Darwinian mantle. Um, but unfortunately he caught typhoid in 1882 and as part of his um, part of his kind of rehabilitation, getting better from, from typhoid, he decided to climb an unscaled peak on Mont Blanc, which is the highest mountain in Europe. Now um, I've had typhoid. It's quite debilitating. And part of my rehabilitation did not involve climbing the unscaled m- peak of a, <laughs> of a high mountain. But that's the kind of guy Balfour was. Uh, so he climbed up there uh, and fell off in July 1882. So he died um, tragically. Uh, and kind of the good thing that came out of that story is is that, that the university created an endowment called the Balfour Balfour's studentship to honour him, Um, and Caldwell was the first recipient of this studentship. It's still around today uh, in my department. Um, And before he died, Balfour had told Caldwell, why don't you spend some time in Australia and kind of really go for this egg-laying mammal uh, conundrum and find the answer. So with a load of money for the University of Cambridge, a load of money from the Royal Society and from the British government, and with all these letters of kind of diplomatic introduction to the governors of uh, New South Wales, of Victoria, and Queensland, um, Corbell arrives in 1883 to, to answer this question. And he, after a little while, he, um, he employs initially about 50 Waka Waka indigenous people in Queensland to catch platypuses and echidnas, which is uh, it's a, that's a pretty a large kind of army of people. Uh, kind of setting assault on the native population of, of egg laying mammals. Um, and uh, in August 1884, they caught for Cordwell initially an echidna with one egg in her pouch, and then the week after, a platypus with an egg in her nest and another about to be laying inside her body. And this was the smoking gun um, that the kind of the world was waiting for. And Cordwell. Um Corwell telegrammed um, from the bush, which is extraordinary, telegrammed a meeting of the British British Association for the Advancement of Science in Montreal and you kind know, of made clear the news that egg that some mammals in do lay egg, indeed do lay eggs. And that was said to be the most important scientific telegram ever sent under the under the sea cables. Um, and and finally, the world was willing to accept it. And I think what's interesting there is that they were only willing to accept this information when it came from kind of an emissary from the great imperial monoliths of the University of Cambridge and the Royal Society and the British government. It, weren't, it wasn't coming from an Australian-based uh, naturalist. It was coming from someone that they'd sent over, and that is when they decided that the evidence was kind of uh, incontrovertible. And it kind of demonstrates this, this kind of established idea of colonial science and that is that people out in the colonies are allowed to do the kind of physical labor of collecting specimens and things like that but it's up to the european scientists who can do the intellectual labor Um, and it was only when uh, it was uh, one of the european scientists go over that they kind of allowed that to to come through does that make sense what i'm saying here oh
2: yeah yeah and
3: and it was interesting reading too. He had, as you said, like this huge number of Aboriginal people that he was paying like just enough to keep them going. Together, yeah, all it's, of these specimens.
1: It's really dodgy what he did. Um, so I should say after. So after he found those kind of smoking gun specimens, he then employed 150 people um, to uh, to try and create the complete developmental series. Um, for how egg-laying mammals and marsupials and lungfish, in fact, how they develop from fertilized egg up to adolescence. But yeah, as you say, the kind of the economy that he created was was pretty dodgy. So I mean, on on the plus side, he did pay these people for their specimens, which is something that not every uh, colonial scientist did. But the way he did it was pretty unethical. So he would pay them half a crown per female echidna they collected something like 1,400 echidnas over the space of a few months. Um, and and that is like, what that must have done to the local population, I've no idea. Because, you know, echidnas are pretty widespread, but I've never seen any number uh, in that sort of density. Anyway, they, they killed 1,400 of them. But what he would do is he'd pay them half a crown. But because they were kind of very much in remote uh, central Queensland, there can't have been many places for the indigenous people to spend that money. And so they ended up spending it back on William Caldwell. So he sold them flour and sugar and tea. But what he said he did did was keep changing the price of uh, the flour and the sugar and the tea to maintain the supply. So if he was kind of running thin, he would make, you know, he would give them more. If he had too many, he he would give them less. So he kind of created an economy just out of Echidna's but he didn't keep a, you know, a, flat, a flat rate. They were, they were kind of being hard done by much of the time by changing the value of the echidna.
3: Yeah, that's like, that's some, some devious capitalism going on there um, in the service of science. Um, so then another uh, thing that's often said about wildlife in Australia is that it all wants to kill you. Uh, and so that's another factoid that you you take on in the book so what's wrong with this this meme i guess that that all of australia's animals want to kill you
1: yeah i mean it's a, it's a total meme and it's a, it's a meme that i think australians are pretty pleased with as well you know that it's something to kind of scare the tourists with but it's also kind of i guess makes them feel a little bit more adventurous um and, and no doubt australia has its fair share of of Uh, Dangerous animals. It's got you know. There's no denying just how venomous some of the snakes are. They've got some some pretty nasty spiders, centipedes, ants, octopuses, stingrays. Some of the trees are venomous. Um, So yeah, I'm not saying they're not dangerous. However, there's a couple of things to say about this, and one is that almost nobody dies of um, animal bites, venomous animal bites in Australia, Um, like all of them tragic but a, a very small number a year in fact more people die from bee stings than snake bite and bees uh, and so the native bees in Australia don't have a sting so they're the ones that they're being stung by are, are feral European bees that have been introduced so very few people die compared to the tens of thousands of people that die from snake bite in South America in Asia and Africa so and that that's a significant reason for that is because of the medicine available and also education available in Australia but Kind of The slightly more, I think, significant thing to say about Australian wildlife is, yeah, it has those venomous animals, but it doesn't have any of the large, dangerous animals that we find in any other parts of the world. So all of those animals I listed uh, that are venomous in Australia are also found in pretty much every other place outside of Europe. Uh, so, you know, everywhere has venomous snakes and venomous uh, spiders, centipedes, uh, ants, ants. Um, like that, but in addition, all of those other places also have large, dangerous carnivores, so bears and cats, and, and also large, dangerous herbivores like you know, large buffalo. Uh, and so that that makes Australia a relatively safe place in terms of um, the dangerous wildlife you're likely to encounter. And I think again, this idea that everything in Australia is trying to kill you doesn't it doesn't stack up when you think about any other continent except perhaps Europe, although there are some dangerous animals in Europe. Um, just not as many as elsewhere and it's just i think part of this idea again that australia is just a little bit uncivilized it's just another kind of way that the wildlife is used to add to this colonial notion of of inferiority and kind of savageness um yeah
3: yeah and uh having gotten a bad case of poison ivy a couple years ago i can uh i can say we have some trees trying to kill you here in north america as well (laughs) yeah I've, i've I've learned to be very careful in the woods. Um, So I know a lot of people are worried about the impacts of things like climate change and the bushfires, like the huge ones 2019 to 2020 that uh, Australia had and the the impacts this is having on uh, Australia's mammal populations. So how worried should we be about these kind of things?
1: Well, I'm unfortunately pretty worried. There's no real way of of spinning it. like, there's, there's so many threats in Australia that is, is driving this extinction crisis. Um, so, yeah, as you say, climate change, bushfires, um, which are obviously, those two things are interrelated, um, and other ways that, that the climate, that the fire history of Australia has changed since um, Indigenous dispossession. Um, there's also you know, the, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, threat is introduced predators. So, Europeans introduced cats and foxes to Australia, um, which have eaten... Most things um, that are around, uh, as well as other introduced animals, introduced herbivores. So there's feral cattle, there's feral deer, there's feral camels, there's feral rabbits, there's feral pigs, there's feral donkeys, uh, there's feral buffalo, um, there's feral goats. Uh, plus all of the kind of domestic animals that farmed for livestock, cows and cows and goats and, and sheep across Australia. Um, there's there's so many and and an extraordinary level of land clearing like the way that agriculture uh extractive industries like mining um uh, and energy production uh and obviously like disurbanization have have clear failed australia is, is and continue to is pretty astonishing but kind of the the overriding theme of this is that Australia's governments have been have been pretty poor in prioritising conservation. There is amazing conservation work going on across Australia. What conservationists are able to achieve in in kind of propping up the surviving wildlife is extraordinary, but it's done against the backdrop of kind of really limited federal support. The um, the kind of environmental protection legislation is is completely toothless in Australia. There's no legal requirement. To protect legal species, uh, threatened species in Australia, which is surprising. That's um, pretty worrying. And there's, you know, the day we're recording is the day before a uh, general election in Australia, um, but neither of the um, kind of the two main parties are prioritising climate change or environmental measures, which is, which is worrying. And I and I say there are many reasons for this, and you know, most of them colonial in nature because it's about resource extraction, but. Um, I just don't think it helps to keep calling them weird and wonderful. Um, I'm not, I don't think that is the cause, but what I'm saying is it doesn't help kind of convince governments to take things seriously. If, if people might look at koalas or, or platypuses or echidnas um, and think, "Oh, they're just kind of these weird little uh, evolutionary dead ends," that well, we like them a lot, but they don't really fit in this world. They're not really kind of advanced enough to. Um, to survive the pressures of the modern world which which doesn't make any sense obviously cut cut a, cut a koala's tree down and then blame it for dying is is pretty stupid but um that, that's that's the kind of the the kind of not very light-hearted kind of chapter on the book is is how all these things come together and to leave a pretty worrying state of affairs for australian wildlife
3: all right uh so to Kind of start wrapping up things here i'd like to do kind of a, a lightning round uh here um mm-hmm. so i'm gonna gonna name a few australian mammals and ask you to share you know, one one cooler interesting fact <laughs> about them that we haven't heard yet in the, in our, the spot here. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah just you know one thing that you think is interesting about about each one that we haven't mentioned yet so we'll start uh of course with the platypus
1: um i guess what's about them like one of the most amazing things about many many amazing things about them well, one i'll go for is that um they can detect electricity so they're one of a tiny handful of mammals um that can detect the electrical impulses that are given off by the um kind of the nervous control of muscles in their prey so as i'm sure we all know um Every muscular movement in the animal kingdom is controlled by a little electrical impulse running down our nerves. And when platypuses go underwater, they close close up their ears and their eyes and their nostrils. And they can then sense the world in those electrical impulses from their prey, including their prey's heartbeats. And that's how they can catch almost their entire body weight in food every day. Um, Pretty much almost nothing else can do that. There's one species of dolphin that can do that, and echidnas are slightly electroreceptive because they evolved from platypuses, but that's it. Amazing. Okay, so how about echidnas? <laughs> they're also slightly electroreceptive, but my favourite thing about them is what they can do with their hands. So, echidnas got massive four feet, massive you know front legs, um, four claws, and their back feet have got these long curved claws, and they actually their back feet point backwards. Um, and what they do when they're scared is shimmy in like jazz hands with all four feet at once and that drills like a handheld like four handheld blenders that drills vertically down into the ground and with like what appears nothing more than a shimmy they just like bury themselves vertically um leaving just a, a kind of a sheet of really really thick spines at surface level so they're they then lock themselves into the soil it's absolutely impossible for a predator to get at them um, and it's just amazing them to watch them do this just like disappear vertically uh below ground like some kind of um you kind know, of trigger deal <laughs> i almost want to say uh digger drill um going down with they're great okay how about wombats Wombats, well, my second favorite animal um Many things to say about them. I guess people's favourite fact about wombats is that they, they poop cubes, um, which is has only just been discovered how they do it. But you go into wombat habitat, you'll see these kind of perfect inch sided cubes everywhere of poop. And and I guess how they do it is is people. It's not to do because it's not because they have a square anus. They don't. Um, but what they do. Just been discovered, as I say, uh, they have bands of different flexible, flexible, and um, tissue throughout their intestines, and when so they alternate bands of, of flexible uh, tissue with stiff tissue, and when that is compressed, and the poo is compressed inside that, it produces uh, poo with edges, with corners, um, and that's how they create it. I guess the question is why. Um, so, what they when you walk around and you see these poops. They are on top of things, they, they poo on noticeable structures in their um, territories uh, and that is to kind of help them map, map out in scent uh, their home ranges. Um, and if you poo on a boulder uh, and your poop is cubic, it won't roll off. So it's, it's a pretty nifty trick.
3: Okay, then how about the Tasmanian devil?
1: Um, devils, I told you about how they reproduce, um, but I guess what's uh, a little thing to say is well, it's a sad story, they are they are um currently being absolutely decimated by a a contagious cancer, so they've got something called devil facial tumor disease, which I've been um supporting the University of Tasmania and researching for about 12 years, um, so devils are really really aggressive towards each other um, so whenever they kind of meet uh, at a carcass or perhaps while they're mating they'll bite each other and unfortunately the diseases kind of exploited this so that um a devil will have facial tumor on its face when it bites another devil uh the cancer cells can get stuck on the second devil and start growing into a new tumor so the cancer cell is the pathogen itself which is which is really unusual in the animal kingdom there are very few contagious cancers devils have got one so that's um i mean that's a sad one i guess a more upbeat one is they've got the strongest bite force of any animal of any mammal at least um alive today they, they're pretty um bitey which when we're studying them and looking for tumors inside their mouths so i guess it's a little bit risky but they're fortunately they go all floppy when you handle them if you're a person not that i would recommend sticking your hand in the devil's mouth um, <laughs>
3: okay uh, and then last uh, we've mentioned that Australia does have a number of native placental mammals uh, a lot of which are rodents so can you give us a an interesting fact about uh, some of the the rats and mice of Australia
1: yeah they've got some really cool rodents that kind of fill um, niches that you might find different animals in the rest of the world so they've got kind of monkey versions of rodents they've got otter versions of rodents and um, they've got kind of a hopping they've got kind of little hopping rodents like uh like tiny kangaroos but also like tiny or kangaroo rats um, that you have in north america incidentally kangaroo rats are one of the only non-australian animals that are named after an australian animal um, obviously named after kangaroos but i guess my favorite australian rodent if i'm pushed is called a stick nest rat um, there were two species of them but now one of them extinct, is extinct and the other one's super rare but these stick nest rats build kind of these mansions out of foot-long sticks so they, they, you come across in um, central deserts you can come across these kind of one to two metre tall uh, mounds of sticks that are a couple of metres wide that a couple of families of stick nest rats live in and they glue them together um, with their urine and so they are absolutely solid structures. They can last for hundreds of years. Like so you still find these nests in habitats that the species have disappeared from um hundred years ago. But that like like they're these little tiny rodent well, they're not tiny, they're kind of foot long rodent architects. Um so they're called Yeah.
3: So I have to share my own story about stick nest rats, uh, actually. Um, So I did a semester abroad at the University of Wollongong in in New South Wales, and I took an archaeology course. And um, you can actually use the stick nest rat nests to date archaeological sites. Um, And so I I came into class one day, and the professor had some different artifacts out on the, the table. And there was one that was like this like shiny black rock and i I picked it up and i was like what's this and she said well that's stick nest rat urine i was holding this giant thing in my hand and put it down very quickly and and went and washed my hands (laughs)
1: okay
3: uh so we always like to end our interviews by asking what you're working on next so what's your next project now that this book is out
1: um i guess it's quite similar but i've i've recently started a a fellowship studying the colonial history of our Australian mammal collections here at the University of Museum of Zoology in Cambridge. So we have, um, you know, a great collection of Australian mammals here um, in, in the museum. And I'm trying to understand um, their, their their true histories, if you like. So they've, they've all got a you know a white guy attached to them um, as the collector, but it's, in many cases, it's almost impossible that, um, that person could have actually collected these specimens, you know, like this. marsupial moles are uh, tiny subterranean um marsupials that look a lot like moles. Um and, and we have a collection uh, um, that was made by Edward Sterling who described the species. And I think it's it's kind of impossible that he could have gone to Central Australia and found this animal without some indigenous uh labor. So I'm trying to kind of uncover the you know, greater diversity of people that were responsible for kind of major discoveries in the history of science that so far haven't been um given the credit they deserve so that's what i'm working on at the moment
3: all right well that sounds really interesting so thank you so much for coming on the show
1: thanks for having me
3: you just heard a conversation with jack ashby author of platypus matters the extraordinary story of australian mammals published this year by william collins